When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, will you grant us now as we uh, investigate your word, as we consider um, this gospel reading, Jesus' prayer, Father, to you, just before the cross, will you grant us to hear what it is that you want us to hear? Will you grant us to recognize what is true? Will you grant us uh, to trust you ever more deeply? And we need your Holy Spirit to do that because we can't pull that off. So we ask for your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And... uh, It'd be helpful if you would turn back to page 11, that second reading, which is kind of short. That's where we're going to focus today. Um, As you know, as you can tell, uh, it is the first Sunday in Advent. And um, generally, Advent, we've already described it this way, generally uh, people describe Advent as a season in the church year where we're getting ready for Christmas. And that's not wrong. Uh, However, let me point out just a different way of thinking about Advent. Uh, Advent is a season of the year in which Christians practice looking at the big story that the Bible gives us, the big story of creation, uh, the big story of what we call redemption, when God uh, reconciles people back to himself Um, And really, the big story of all of history, as audacious as that might sound, we look at this big story, and we realize and practice realizing that we are not the main characters in that story. Um, We look at the big story, and even the little individual stories of our lives And in Advent, what we get to see is that we are not, contrary to our suspicion and intuition, we are not the center of this story. We're not the center of the story. However, however, Advent also tells us that while we are not the center of the story, we are invited into the center of the story. Let me try to illustrate this. Um, You you remember the the story of the, The Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah, um, remember the main character, Dorothy? Um, she goes from black and white, Kansas, to uh, what is it? It's kind of like this psychedelic alternative universe. And she skips down the yellow brick road and hangs out with a, a lion and a, what I always found a really frightening scarecrow and the rest of the team, right? Um, so you, you, you know that story, right? Do you? Yeah, some, people, some of us? Anyways, but then I'll bet you more of us, maybe, I don't know, have seen the musical Wicked, right? And Wicked is the same story, except if you've seen it, you know it's a completely different story, right? And why is it a completely different story? It's a different story because it has a different main character. 
right? Uh, Dorothy is the main character in uh, The Wizard of Oz, but she's almost an extra in the musical. And the musical tells the same story, kind of, except from the vantage point of, this, of the, the wicked witch, right? The apparently wicked, the oddly green-colored, uh, wildly misunderstood witch that likes to defy gravity, right? That's, that's, and, but the point is, you change the character and you transform the story. Now, that's what Advent does. Because what Advent tells us our story, the same story that we're living in, but in a very audacious way, Advent dares to tell us that you are not the main character even in your own story, and you will never grasp your own story or any other story until you realize who the real main characters actually are. Now, all that's introduction, but that brings us to our gospel reading. Because in this short little gospel reading, we get to start listening in on the conversation between the two main characters in the story that's kind of underneath all the other stories of our lives. So we're in John chapter 17. We're continuing right on from where we've been all autumn long. Um, All through the autumn, we've been listening in on Jesus' longest conversation with his disciples. But now that conversation is over. And here in John chapter 17, in our reading, we begin to listen in on the longest conversation that Jesus, that is recorded between Jesus and God the Father. And in this prayer that we get to listen in on, Jesus talks about the story But not from our perspective. We get to look at the story from God's perspective, from Jesus' perspective. And here's what we find out. We're not the center of the story. But in a remarkable way, we're invited into it. And that makes all the difference. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at the reading. Take a look at verse 1. It says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, remember the scene? We've been talking about this all autumn. Um, Jesus is about ready to get arrested and executed, and he knows that that's coming. He's just finished the longest conversation ever recorded between him and his disciples, and he's entering into, within the next few minutes and hours, he's entering into the worst suffering of his life. So it's not surprising that he prays. What is surprising is what it is that he prays about. You see what he asks for? He says, Father, it's time. Glorify me. Now, what does that mean? Why is it important? Focus in on the word glory and glorify. Um, if, you're, uh, if, if you come from a religious background, that's probably a very familiar word to you. Um, if you don't come from a religious background, it won't be familiar to you. Um, rest assured, however, that most of us who are very, very religious don't know what it means either. Um, so here's my best attempt at what Jesus is talking about here. There's lots of reasons why it's a big concept. So you glorify someone... Some of you religious types, tell me if you think this is right. You glorify someone when you love them in a way that unveils their beauty 
and honors their beauty. For instance, I can say, and I do, that I married very, very well, thank you. And I can talk about my wife, Amber, and I can say she's uh, wonderfully beautiful, she is smart, she's a very good musician, and I can't believe that she was silly enough to marry me. And if I do that, and I do, there's a way in which I'm glorifying her. Because what I'm doing is I'm expressing my love for her uh, in a way that uh, shows others publicly how beautiful, wonderful, compelling she is, and all the rest of it. Now, keep that in your mind and go back to the passage, because what you have is you have Jesus, the Son of God, speaking to God the Father. And the two of them, according to verse 5, right at the end of the reading, the two of them apparently for all eternity past have been locked in this relationship where each of them is glorifying the other. Do you catch that? And part of what that means is that God the Father and God the Son have loved each other, and this stretches back before time itself, which I know is audacious, but loving each other so that they looked at each other and enjoyed each other's beauty and desired to make the other person's beauty publicly known as widely as possible. Now, that's their history. But verse 1 says, Jesus says, Father, now is the critical moment. Now is the hour. Now is the key moment where, Father, I will display your beauty and I ask you to display my beauty as publicly as possible. Now, my question comes up now is this. Um, Why is this the critical moment? Why does Jesus say, this is the hour? Here we are. And to understand that, you need to back up because there's a backstory. Um, you have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. And at the very beginning of the Bible, um, God creates, right? Six days, God created everything. But then God creates humanity. And if you look at the story, when God creates humanity, it's a little different than when God creates everything else. When God creates everything else, he, says, he looks at it and he says, man, that... That is nicely done. That is good. But then he creates humanity and he goes, that is really good. There's a way in which he glorifies humanity. And not only does he glorify humanity by um, saying, wow, I I did well. Uh, He also glorifies humanity by giving humanity a job to do and an authority to get it done. If you remember... Uh, Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created humanity in his own image. That means many things, but part of what that meant is that there was a vocation and a job involved. Um, God wanted humanity to represent him. They had work to do, and they had authority to do it. He says, I've given you authority, dominion over creation. I want you to use that authority to represent me well. And part of what was supposed to happen is that humanity was supposed to look at the beauty of God and find the different aspects of God's beauty, excuse me, and then reflect that beauty. So, for instance, um, part of God's beauty is that he created everything. And humanity was supposed to reflect that beauty in part by cultivating creation, a little bit like a gardener. Another aspect of God's beauty is that God is so remarkably loving. 
and humanity was to use their authority to get the job done of reflecting God's beauty in terms of his love by living in close relationship with each other and serving each other. Those are examples, but the point is that God glorified humanity so that humanity would glorify God back by loving him in such a way that they could unveil his beauty publicly. Now, that was the design, but if you know the rest of the story, what happened is humanity took the authority, uh, the capacity to have dominion over creation, took that authority but didn't get the job done, didn't glorify God, rejected God, rejected God's love. So instead of uh, loving God, we refused to love God, and therefore we were never able to get the job done. We couldn't represent him well. So for instance, instead of gardening creation, we exploit it. Instead of loving each other well, we use each other and we abuse each other and all of those sorts of things. That... And through the unfolding tragedy of our rejection of God, what happens is we begin to imagine that we are the center of our own stories. And most of us were raised to absolutely think that. Now, fast forward a little bit in the Bible, and you come to uh, God calling Abraham to himself and establishing the people of Israel, and something very similar happens there. Because God calls Abraham to himself and then later on establishes the nation of Israel, and what he does is, in, in a way, he glorifies them. He shares some of his beauty with them. So that's part of what giving the law is all about in Sinai and Moses and the Ten Commandments and the rest of it. Um, he, God revealed his character and then said, Israel, as I reveal my character to you, reveal my beauty to you, I want you to reflect my beauty by living in a particular way. And as you glorify me by unveiling my beauty publicly to the world, you will become, God said, a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That was the job. And they were given authority to do it. But once again, if you know the rest of the Old Testament, what you find is that Israel had some wonderful moments. But a lot of the time, most of the time, a lot of the time, they end up rejecting God, just like Adam and Eve, rejecting God's beauty. And again, they put themselves back at the center of the story, and inevitably they end up exploiting each other and everything else. Now pause. Button. If we stop the story there, it would appear, wouldn't it, that God is a failure. God started the project one time, didn't work. He started it again, tried it, oh, didn't work again. It would appear that history, if the point of history has anything to do with God's original creative design, then it would appear that history is meaningless. And I'm tempted, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. I was getting tempted to say, I'm just going to go ahead and say it and see what you think of it. When humanity puts ourselves at the center of the story, when we put ourselves at the center of history, we very often end up finding that history is tragically and frighteningly meaningless. And when we do that in our own individual lives, something very similar happens. If I am the center of my own individual life, then I will become self-focused and self-absorbed, and that's the quickest way to have an utterly meaningless life. 
That was just an aside. Go back to our reading. Because Jesus says, now, the hour's come. Now the moment has finally arrived. Father, glorify me, Jesus says. Did that seem like arrogant? Put it in the story. Glorify me because I'm going to glorify you. Father, love me by showing the world, Jesus says, the full extent of my beauty, and I will love you by showing the world the full extent of your beauty. And the big audacious claim of Christianity, which is the big audacious claim of Advent, which is the big audacious claim of this passage, is that this is the center of the whole story and the inner meaning of every story. The big audacious claim, and, you know, if you think this is crazy, like, that, I, I get it. Like, I understand. But the big audacious claim is that the story of this world is not defined even in the moment when God created the world. The big story of this world is not, the full meaning isn't exhausted even when you look at this unfolding of the story of Israel. Creation and the unfolding of the story of Israel was just the opening scene. And the meaning of this world and of history isn't defined by Western civilization or the wonderful and tragic story of our own nation. Those are just side stories. It's not that they're unimportant. It's that they're incomplete without the main character. Go back to Jesus. Do you see how it is that God glorifies Jesus? It's as if the Father says, here, finally, is the man, the real man. And God the Father gives him authority and a job. Verse 2, God the Father gives Jesus authority over all creation. Verse 4, Jesus uses that authority to accomplish all the work that God has given him. Jesus accomplishes what neither Adam nor Israel could ever do. And do you know what the work is? you know what the work Jesus is supposed to do? Stay with me here. Don't go away. Look back at it. Verse 2. Jesus' work is to give eternal life. What's eternal life? Does it mean uh, living for a long, long time in a heaven far, far away? Yeah, but no. It means knowing God. Do you see that there? It means knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. Or let me say it this way. You and I are not the center of any story, not even our own. But, but, Eternal life is when you and I are drawn into the center of the story. The center of the story is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son bound together in the joy and love of the Holy Spirit. God the Father glorifying the Son, meaning loving Him and unveiling His beauty. God the Son glorifying the Father, meaning loving Him and unveiling His beauty. And the Holy Spirit binding them together in eternal joy. That's the center of the story. And all human history is a long story of being tragically outside the center and desperately desiring it to be inside it. 
And then all along trying to tell ourselves, yes, no, I am in the center. I am the center of things because we want to be in the center of things. And somehow deep down in our hearts, our insecurities betray us and we know we're not. And the wonderful good news is that God the Son, enjoying eternal glory, looked at us at the margins of the story looked at us outside the center and would not leave us there. But in a remarkable act of love, he set aside something of his own glory. And he reached out and went out to the margins of the story as if we were just extras went out to the margins of the story and became what we are. He became human so that we could become what he is, the child of God, glorying in the love of the Father. And he comes to us and he reaches out to us, fully human, and he says, I desire that you would be brought into the center of the story, that you would taste and see the wonder of being caught in the crossfire of affection between me and my father. So come, and I will purchase your entrance with the cost of my own blood. Friends, that's eternal life. Now, some of us here are not Christians, and I want to recommend something. Can I? Can I recommend? Um, Everybody's going to spend the next several weeks getting ready for Christmas, and that's fine. But let me encourage you to do something different. Let me encourage you to use these next four weeks to read Jesus, meaning read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Read them, and as you read Jesus for yourself, consider giving Jesus your consent. What do I mean? In this text, Jesus offers eternal life, offers to bring you into the relationship between the Father and the Son so that you get to enjoy some of that, so that you're, and you enjoy the joy that comes from that, but Jesus asks us to consent to that process. It is not automatic. Don't imagine that it is. So read Jesus and ask yourself, is this somebody that I can trust? We will never ask you at Emmanuel to blindly believe. Blind faith is usually very foolish. Instead, read Jesus for yourself, critically. Bombard him with your questions. And fundamentally ask, is Jesus somebody that I can trust? Now, Christians, this reading tells you what story you're in. And it's quite important that we know. And one of the great spiritual dangers for you and for me is that we begin to imagine that we, again, are the center of our own stories. Like I said, you've been told that from the time that you were little. I have. But on the other hand, part of growing up in Jesus is realizing to a greater extent that Jesus is the center of the story and that he always has been the center of the story and that he will always be the center of your story. So I want to encourage you to think about your past, think about your present, and think about your future. First of all, think about your past. This Advent, 
Part of what Jesus wants to do is he wants to help you reinterpret your past, the past story of your life. Because when you look back on your life, if you're like just about everybody else, um, you'll, find, you'll regret some things. Do you regret things? You'll feel proud about some things. You'll feel pain about some things. Let me encourage you to ask Jesus to help you see your own personal history and see that it was all part of Jesus's, Jesus using your story to draw you closer to him and to his father. What I mean is, Jesus wants to use every aspect of your past to drive you closer and closer to him. That is, to give you more of eternal life. Now, I can't tell you from behind this pulpit how he's going to do that. That's why you need to ask him about it. But in broad terms, you'll look back and you'll see your sin and you will see Jesus redeeming your sin. And you will look back and you will see pain, terrible pain, and you'll say, Jesus, how are you going to redeem that? And then what you will find in one way or another is Jesus will take that pain and he will unite it to his own suffering and you will find Jesus Christ weeping with you. And somehow as you find Jesus Christ weeping with you, God's own tears will meld with yours and you will find on the other side that you are closer to Jesus Christ in love and affection. I'm not saying the pain isn't pain. Don't ever hear me say that because Jesus doesn't. But he will change the story and he will give it a meaning that you can't see now. And you'll look back and you'll see joys. And what he'll do is he'll say, all of those joys are just appetizers. Let me give you the meal. Jesus wants to reinterpret your past. Secondly, Jesus wants to redirect your present. Because your present uh, task is to enjoy eternal life. <laughs> your present, and, and that's present, that's not just future. It's not just talking about heaven. Jesus promises to give you eternal life now so that you can know God personally now, so that you can know Jesus now. And it's the Holy Spirit that imparts that joy. And if Jesus promises that gift, then don't let him off the hook until he gives it and gives it more. Uh, I love this. There was an old Puritan who used to say, um, <clears throat> when you pray, lay out the promises of God before you Remind God about his promises and then sue him for them. Take him to court. Sue God until he keeps your, his promises. That's what prayer is. Please don't pray polite. It's a waste of time. Jesus, make me share the glory that you enjoy with your Father and the Holy Spirit and don't let him off the hook until he does. So reinterpret the past. Redirect the present, but also focus on the task for the future. Because remember, God created humanity with, an, with a job to do and authority to do it, but we didn't do it. God gave all that authority and infinite more to Jesus Christ, and he completed his work when he died upon the cross to bring you into eternal life. But now, once you receive eternal life, you get both authority and a job to do as well. Not exactly the same job as Jesus, not by a long way, but it is similar in this way. The rest of your future is tasked with the job of glorifying God. That is to say, looking at the beauty of Jesus Christ 
and making and loving him in such a way that that love and that beauty becomes as public as possible. And you've got to see the beauty of Jesus Christ to get that done, but once you do, you will desire to reflect that beauty. And what it'll ha- what'll happen is our job will be to take every area of our lives and say, Jesus, show me your beauty and then use this area of my life to reflect it. Use my relationships and my money. Use my home, use my education, use my pain, use my joy, use my profession, use my disappointments, use every aspect of who I am and make it a platform and a stage for displaying your glory and your beauty as publicly as I possibly can. And friends, that is the way to live a life that is full of meaning. And you'll see that you're not the center of the story, but you'll also see that you're invited into it. And there's no better place to be. And that's the journey of Advent. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmanuel Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jim Saladin, the minister here. At Emmanuel, we seek to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City and ultimately the world. We rely on the generous giving of people like you. Consider supporting our ministries at www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.